Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the Right-ish Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Zell. With me today is Dr. Andres Marquin, a professor of economics at Mercer University. A great deal of his work comes from the on-the-ground research he conducts across the globe, from the Amazonian wilderness to the Kalahari Desert. With all this experience comes many great stories and insights, which he will be sharing with us today. So uh, without further ado, let's get started. How are you doing today, Dr. Marquin? I'm pretty good, Rob. Thanks for the, uh, for the chat. Thanks for the interview. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess the first question, um, could you tell us like your story and what got you interested in developmental economics? Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, I am from, uh, I was born in, in Guatemala, in Central America. And uh, growing up, it was pretty evident to me that there were these huge differences in income between, let's say, countries like the United States and countries like Guatemala. So when I was a child, I used to watch this uh, TV series, and like the US TV series, and I could kind of make the comparison between the, what was going on in this series, like the standard of living, and the standard of living in the, in the town where I was growing up. So these standards of living were so different, and that sparked my interest and, and the question of why is it that some countries are rich, why is it that some countries are poor, and that was basically my main motivation. Yeah, it's super fascinating. It's honestly probably one of the more interesting pieces of economics, in, in my opinion. Um, not just between like countries, but also like between like individuals and groups. You know, just like uh, the comparative side of it. You know, what what really constitutes um, the, the best process for creating wealth on any level. You know, so it's it's definitely a really interesting question. Um, yeah, and, and actually, uh, the like you said, uh, you correctly point out that you have these differences in, in wealth within countries. Uh, in, in some countries, there are some areas that are very rich, some areas that are very poor. One famous case is actually Italy, right? So the north of Italy is significantly richer than the south of Italy. So within countries, you have these differences, even within towns and, of course, across people. So the, the question is why, you know, why is it that we see these differences? And of course, the, 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 the answer to this question is, is very, you know, there are many answers and come from different kind of theories, different schools of thought, uh, different perspectives. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm, we are still uh, looking for the answer, right? It's not like a, we have the, the silver bullet of why this happens, but, uh, but, but we have uh, advanced a lot in our understanding of these differences. And one of the amazing things about your class is that we, we read the book Why Nations Fail, kind of like to give an, an institutional uh, theoretical framework for the differences between nations, but we also like do reading like, like a, lot of, a lot of your work and some of the like, podcasts with like different people like uh, Joseph Heinrich, uh, kind of like looking into the, the cultural side and, and just like different aspects of comparative development, which really give us a well-rounded kind of feel. Um, but... I heard a quote not too long ago that uh, most of like the major recent discoveries in science in the social sciences have come from like this uh, cross pollination of one separated fields of study. So like an example would be how technology developed by astrophysicists designed to discern atomic makeup of celestial bodies eventually led to what we know of as like the MRI, 
which has revolutionized medicine and saved countless lives. And in class, you've stated that you use more of like an anthropological approach uh, in much of your research. So you look at like culture, behavior, and expression of, of groups of people. And so do you feel like this is given, like this kind of approach would potentially revolutionize economics? And if so, like what insights has it given to you? And are there any other like potential fields that could be integrated into economics um, that could potentially yield like really, really wonderful results? Yeah, um, so um, actually currently in economics, uh, if you look at the, the main journals in the profession, um, there is more attention now given, to, these main journals are like the American Economic Review or the Quarterly Journal of Economics. So if you look at these, um, at these journals, there is now more attention given to culture. So for a long time, economists focus on other variables, like uh, in terms of specifically economic development, economists will be looking at, uh, for example, geography, right? The importance of geography, um, then the importance of policies, then the importance of institutions, right? And, and nowadays, uh, we see like a more diverse um, kind of set of, uh, set of explanations. And, and in these journals now, you see a lot of uh, work on culture. Um, so they are um, basically analyzing these huge data sets that were um, built on work of by anthropologists, right? So there is like a, a very famous, uh, in, the, in the profession, this famous um, ethnographic uh, atlas, right, that talks about like uh, the different cultures, many cultures in Africa, many cultures in Latin America, and now, the, actually, there is a, a, a current paper now in the Quarterly Journal of Economics that talks about folklore. So folklore is like the stories, the narratives that you have in these places. And this paper is about how these narratives affect economic development. So economists are now paying attention to, to economics with the difference that, to culture, sorry, with the difference that the very powerful statistical tools uh, very powerful um, inference uh, tools uh, to, to analyze these data sets. So it's a, still a very quantitative um, field, uh, but based on aspects of culture. So it's like, a, in a way, it's like a economics kind of penetrating another field, which is the field of anthropology. So that is one, one way to look at it. And there is also another field in, in economics that is called uh, experimental economics. So with experimental economics, usually uh, they do like um, experiments in the lab, right? Like they, they do, um, they play different games like the trust game, the prisoner's dilemma game, the ultimatum game, the public goods game. So they play that in the, in the laboratory. But there is also another area of experimental economics, which is field experiments. So you have like these economists joining forces with anthropologists and sociologists and they go to different to these places. They go to the Amazon. They go to Africa. Different uh, uh, cultures in Africa, and they run these experiments to spend um, assumptions, inequality assumptions. For example, they um, they kind of uh, we show we see the same results across cultures. Right? So yeah, there is a lot of that. Um, uh, it's a different different perspective, right? It's, 
is looking at at the shared values that people have, uh, the belief systems that people have, and these belief systems kind of come from a whole history of traditions across generations. And the idea is to what extent these beliefs affect and uh, have some effect on, on economic outcomes. So it's a pretty fertile area of research uh, right now in economics, I would say. That, that's amazing. Because if you think about it, like uh, many, I guess, cultural aspects and psychological aspects, it's almost like systematic in a way. So decisions are made um, like certain certain biases, for example, like your like an affect heuristic or or um, like certain priming effects in behavioral economics can be like actually measured and understood like in mass. And uh, and also with cultural uh, factors, you can have like certain like trends when it comes to like, you know, what, what groups of people come to what sorts of equilibriums depending on, on, on their culture. Uh, like, so it's just kind of amazing how it's, it's something that kind of goes against the idea of like the atomistic sense of the individual, like, you know, just the purely rational decision maker, um, which the assumptions, uh, that assumption and the models that follow are still like helpful in a way, but it's amazing to like actually dive in a little bit deeper and, and come to, uh, I guess, in overall richer conclusions. Yeah, yeah, and and also yeah, just to, to make it more concrete, like uh, in this in this, uh, let me give you uh, some examples of this work. So um, there is this work, very recent work, for example, by this uh, economist. Um, she is at Harvard. I think she her name is Sarah Lois, and what she does is that she's studying um, if the lineage of people, like patrilineal lineage or matrilineal lineage, has some um, consequence, consequences in terms of, of the, um, let's say, uh, performance of women in society, right? Societies in this country that are either uh, the importance of women, the importance of, of, of males, and then how that is going to affect now the investment in, in, in education for females, for example. Uh, and she has, she shows that this is a relevant variable. Another issue, for example, is the, is the issue of tolerance, right? Are, are, are some societies more tolerant to, one, to others, right? And there is work showing that more tolerant societies tend to have higher rates of, of economic growth. Uh, and the question is where tolerance come from, right? And and there is no like a, as, as far as I know, clear answer about where tolerance come from. But this, it seems to be like there are certain groups of people that tend to be more tolerant than others. Um, so another example is the issue of risk, risk preferences, right? Like there are some societies that tend to be more risk takers than other societies, and that is also going to play a role in, in different aspects that are related to economic development and economic growth, like entrepreneurship, for example, right? So the, the, the increase or not uh, might be related to these shared values, cultural values, and that has some effect on entrepreneurship. So that is, uh, of course, um, a way in which people try to incorporate culture. Another thing is there, there is this uh, famous um, study uh, by um, uh, um, a guy called, uh, the last name is Hofstede. I am, I forget the first name right now, but he did several research, uh, several studies 
looking at different aspects of culture, like for example, uncertainty, right? To what extent certain, uh, in this case, countries are more uh, open to uncertainty or they are more open to authority or to question authority or they are more um, more open to like, a, they are more like individualistic or they are more collectivistic societies. And there are so many studies now showing, showing that these variables make a uh, economic development. Hmm. That's really fascinating. And I know just talking about like just culture and, and institutions in general, I think one of the, one of the really interesting papers that you wrote, um, Rationality as a Social Construction, uh, you went into this community, I believe in South Colombia, uh, the Tacuña, and, and can, you, can you just tell us about your, your research and your experience in that? I, I find that really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I did my, um, I did uh, the, the, this field work in in Colombia. Uh, so I wanted to look for a for a community that was kind of relatively isolated, and I looked for that because I wanted to um, to to focus uh, in in this community and to kind of isolate the effects of maybe contact with other uh, places, other groups. So. I selected this place, uh, which is in the Amazon uh, River, in the Colombian Amazon, uh, and I stayed there for some time. Uh, for two. the idea was to try to understand the culture of the of this village and how this culture affects economic development and vice versa. So one of the the shocking uh, first uh, the surprising thing for me at the beginning was that. Uh, when you do anthropological work, uh, you start, you, you kind of have semi-structured uh, interviews with, with people, right? So it's more like you're trying to, to get to know them and then you're trying to ask them different questions and in an informal way. And then, uh, you know, I, I ask questions like, uh, you know, what would you like to be in the future? What, what is your dream? Um, and many of the, of the, uh, people in the in the Tikuna um, village. Uh, it seems to me my interpretation of the of the situation. Of course, I, I I could be wrong about about all of this, but my interpretation of the situation was that they didn't. Uh, some of them didn't really have this idea of of goals, right? Like uh, that is something that that we take for granted in, in certain societies, right? Like what is gonna be your goal? What is gonna be your objective or your purpose in life? Or, um, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? But in these societies, in some of these societies, uh, what you're gonna do when you grow up is, is not really a, a very relevant question because you know that when you grow up, given the context, what you're gonna do is that you're gonna fish, right, uh, in the river. Uh, or you're gonna hunt, or you're gonna do some other activity. So you're gonna do whatever your parents do, and your parents are gonna do or did what the grandparents did. So it's not really a question, right? Like, what is your dream in life? What is your purpose in life? Uh, it's more like following like some traditions. So maybe because of that, like uh, when I was kind of pushing these questions, they would look at me as if I was asking a pretty foreign question, or if I was kind of ask, uh, talking in a foreign language like talking about these goals and so I got into this. So I was I was kind of kind of to trying to figure out 
uh, who are those who, who found this question very strange and those who found the questions more 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 manageable so I, I found that uh, people who who have contact with markets like people who in this in this Sikuna village who went to the bigger city or even like uh, maybe some uh, school teachers right so this type of uh, people they will they will kind of fit into what what I called um, the modern kind of uh, men. So modern men being that uh, rational men, like the, the men that we see more in the kind of the West, right? Quote, quote unquote West, like there are goals that you follow. But but the other people, I call them like the pre-modern men, right? That people who, who because they are not integrated into the market economy, uh, they have a more traditional way of living, uh, maybe some kind of a hunter-gatherer type of characteristics. Uh, they don't are, are hard to fit into this economic rationality that we uh, that we understand in the West. And and of course that's not like um, something that is that is new for me. I was just kind of confirming some other studies done by anthropologists that they they find this the same thing. So there is uh, called Marshall Stachlin. And he have a, has a paper, a book called um, The Original Affluent Society. And he kind of finds the same thing, right? So the idea is that um, that has some, I, I, I kind of uh, conclude uh, in this paper that these differences in rationality, in the way they see the, they see kind of goals and pursuing their goals are gonna have effect on economic development. Mm. Uh, so for example, if you are more into the, into the Western type of rationality, you're probably gonna be more entrepreneur, right? We wanna be more like risk taker. But in the other in the other side, you're probably going to to keep doing whatever you and your tradition tells you to do. And uh, probably you are not gonna be willing to change your the way you do things, right? Or it's gonna take some time and, and some um, change in, in behavior to do that. But you're gonna stick to that, and and that I think that's important because sometimes when you have these development agencies come coming into these places, into these villages, they assume that everybody wants the same thing. They assume that, I mean, I'm not saying every, all of them, and, and there is a lot that has been learned uh, from anthropology about this. But in the past, I will say in the 1970s, 1980s, um, organizations coming to these villages, they will assume that everybody follow this, what I call this Western kind of modern rationality. But if you have people who don't, then these development plans, these kind of uh, strategies to improve development are gonna hit this, this kind of uh, obstacles because people are not heterogeneous, right? So these uh, relationships to rationality are heterogeneous and that, that, is, that is kind of the the main learning uh, experience for me in this in this place, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought this was super interesting because this was the first paper we actually read in your class, and it was kind of wild because, at least coming into the, the class, I had thought like, okay, well maybe the reason why they weren't developed is because they just didn't have access to technology. Maybe you know the industrial revolution, uh, information just didn't disseminate properly, and so you had this like kind of like poverty trap. So. You know, normally I, I think I probably would have thought that like, yeah, you should probably step in and, and try to help them out. But 
as you demonstrated in your research and, and through all your uh, examples and, and recordings of like, you know, past policy implementations, uh, it didn't really seem like they, it, it didn't seem like they really like wanted the help necessarily. Like they, they were incentivized like to do um, uh, like cattle herding, for example, or, or raising livestock. Uh, and also, I guess, like, one of the interesting things is just how, like, abundant the resources were there. Like, they had access to fish and access to nuts, and they'd really, they go out, like, you know, for a really short amount of time, and then they would just, like, you know, be done for the day. And so that was, like, their form of abundance. And so I guess they just didn't think they really, like, needed anything beyond that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, the, the context, right, the environmental context. Uh, because, like you said, the the river is so um, it provides so much wealth in terms of fish, and in terms of other um, other foods that they eat. So, um, so if they have that uh, resource, then there is no the need to accumulate for the future, right? I mean that at least that's the the thesis, right? Like, uh, if you if you are going, if the society that you are is going to have access to this. To this resource, there is not the urgency to um, to accumulate and to save, and and this, so maybe this uh, behavior towards savings, right, towards investment, to some extent, is influenced by this context, this historical context, and this geographic context, right? So, um, so to, I wonder, right, like to, to to what extent these different behaviors that we economic behaviors that we see around the world is is influenced by this presence or absence of, of resources. And, and something, uh, another thing to, to consider is that uh, these uh, societies still um, have some of these characteristics of hunter-gatherer society, right? Uh, and and hunter-gatherer societies, I mean, we live in this stage for, you know, thousands of years. So they, the, some of these characteristics don't go away from, from from, you know very quickly so some of these characteristics stay um, and yeah so I remember one one particular case in which I visited this family and um, so I entered the kitchen or the, the kind of the room that served as a preparation for food and then I, I saw this kind of a, a huge a plastic uh, uh, you know like a was like a like a pool, right? So with with water and with fish in, in, in it, and and then I I could read something in this plastic thing, and and there was like a brand, and I asked them, you know, where, where did you get that? Because it was too too big, and 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 they said something like, well, this used to be an antenna, right? And and it turns out that there was this organization, and I don't remember the details now, but there was this organization that came and set up this internet sort of a, a cafe with with access but i don't know somebody forgot the password to this computer something couldn't uh, somebody couldn't repair this and then the whole project didn't move forward and now the, you have this antenna um doing something that is probably more useful to to these people uh in that context oh my gosh that's so that's so wild so i gotta ask i guess like kind of moving i guess back in time like and i'm not sure if this is even necessarily like a transitive process like because i guess maybe in a less like 
um, in, in a climate with that's more harsh or has more seasons, maybe you know the there isn't really like the the, the there's a, maybe there's more of a need like to actually address scarcity and like you know to be constantly preparing and and whatnot. So I guess that could be a geographical factor to kickstart something, but in terms of like kind of what put the West on the path it is now and what kind of explains the lay of the land. Um, do you, could you talk or, or tell us about any of like the forces or events or institutions that kind of uh, created what we see as like uh, modern prosperity? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there is a lot of, of, of discussion about that. And, and of course, the big event that uh, we saw like this uh, huge increases in living standards was the Industrial Revolution, right? So we are talking about at the end of the 1700s um, happening in, in Britain. So um, so there is a lot of kind of, uh, that was the main the trigger, right? That was the main, like if you see that the rates of growth um, of GDP per capita, that is where, where you see this kind of huge, uh, almost exponential growth. So because of that, uh, people have been looking at what made this industrial revolution possible. And uh, and there is like um, um, some good research there um, by, you know, Darren Asemoglu in this Why Nations Fail book, uh, but also um, Mokir, I don't forget the first name now, uh, but Mokir is a historian uh, and he has a book called Culture of Growth. And he has been studying the, the Industrial Revolution. So there's, there are many economists that have studied the Industrial Revolution to see what were the factors. And what, they, what I remember from this literature is that the, the revolution, the glorious revolution was important. Uh, it was important to, to, to place limits to power, right? It was important to secure property rights. Right, specifically for inventions, right, for the inventions like the steam engine and and, and all of these uh, machines that were created during this time. So there were actually inventors in France and in, in the continent that moved to, to, to Britain because they felt safer there, right, because you have these um, dictators or, you know, these, these kings in, in, in continental Europe that they probably didn't want more, more change or they saw like inventions were going to threat their authority or something, and so these inventors moved to uh, to to England. Uh, and of course, if we go, but but then the question is, right? Like, why why we have this uh, in this secure property rights, this uh, revolution in in uh, the glorious revolution in England, and so if you go a little bit back in time, it seems like like religion play a role too, like religion in the sense that, um, uh, probably in the sense that uh, that made some people to to rely more individually, in the, in the individual rather than in, in the society as a whole. Uh, some people argue that it was probably Protestantism, some people argue that, that Catholicism was important as well. So religion played a role. Uh, there is also the idea that um, there was these new beliefs that human beings could control nature, right? That you can you can use like rivers to your benefit, like uh, to the benefit of society. That 
that it was men in control of nature. So that goes back to to Newton, right, and and to to these big thinkers before the Industrial Revolution. So uh, another thinker before the Industrial Revolution. So um, yeah, there is a, there is still a, a, you know there is we have this theory of why why it happened. Uh, some all, if you go back in time, there is a, a another book called uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, and and he asks a very important question, which is a very kind of interesting question, which is why was it the case that Britain and Spain and other countries uh, colonized uh, America and Africa? Why was not it the opposite? Why why didn't the the, the populations in Latin America or America went to colonize Britain and and he goes back in time and what he proposes is that it has to do with um, domesticating animals and domesticating plants like the first societies that were able to domesticate animals were uh, able to were able to to develop the technologies that allow them to go and conquest other places but yeah so uh, institutions right institutions play an important role like property rights like a um, for for Asimoglu and Robinson, which is the book that we are reading in class, for them, um, you have these critical junctures, as they call it, like this crisis that happens in, in history. And once this crisis happens, they kind of um, might foster change. So for one of the examples that they have is the, the Black Death, like the, the pandemia um, of the Middle Ages. Right, so from from their perspective, the pandemia, especially in Britain, the consequence of the pandemia was that it gave the workers more power against the uh, rulers, like the absolute rulers. So that kind of brought more um, a more uh, you know like a equitable feel, like a, it gave more rights to to workers, and then it reduced the power of of, of these. Uh, dictators and and then and then that allow like a more kind of democratic development, which more civil type of development, which led to to other changes in institutions. But yeah, so that's the kind of going back in going back in in history. And I think also what we learned about was like um, just I guess the different qualities of uh, of institutions, and so. Like we learned about how like there's differences between like extractive uh, political institutions and inclusive political institutions, whereas there's also like a difference between like extractive economic institutions and inclusive economic institutions, and uh, I, I guess that's a big part of like you know uh, what what came after like the Black Plague, because like you were saying like you know since there so many people died like I guess like I, I think it was like fifty percent of Europeans. Uh, passed away in the course of the plague, you had this massive shortage, which like effectively created a labor market. So all of a sudden, you had this like this new, I guess, sense of like like power that um, some of these peasants had, and so that kind of like laid laid the foundation for institutions that recognized human ingenuity and kind of started that process, which is like really amazing. Which is just the coolest part about developmental economics because, like, we just we don't learn about this in like introductory courses. Which I understand, like, you know, obviously there's there's a lot of just 
kind of like groundwork supply and demand kind of concepts that you got to understand but it's just like you know it seems like probably one of the one of the biggest stories uh in economics yeah yeah uh the, yeah the aspect of um of the of the institutions inclusive and extractive institution that that uh had a huge influence in in economic development and economics as, as a whole in fact uh the the same authors um as the Moglu, uh, and Robinson, they have a paper uh, with another author, Asimoglu, Robinson, and Johnson. So this is a 2000, I think it's 2001 paper or 2003 paper uh, that is called the comparative origins of uh, the, the colonial origins of comparative development. Uh, and so what they do is that uh, they try to 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 explain why in some societies. Uh, more um, inclusive institutions were developed, and what they say is that uh, that was linked with the type of environment that the, the, the these, these um, missionaries or these uh, armies faced in in colonial times. So, in environments in which it was likely to die because of malaria, because of these these tropical diseases, these um, uh, 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 these people, um, these missionaries, and, and these army people, they will um, have the incentives to to exploit the resources as much as possible and then leave. Otherwise, they will die. Right, and, and in places in which uh, the in which it was less likely to die, then the incentives that they faced were different because they were probably thought about like. Uh, settle in the place and establish the long-term institutions for their families and for the society, right? So he has, they have a very nice um, strategy to identify this causality, right? So they use um, a method called instrumental variables, and they look at the settled mortality, and they find that in, in those places in which the settled mortality was higher, um, you see worse institutions um, in the past, and you see worse institutions today, right? So that open that, that is actually one of the most, if not the most cited paper in economic development, and that opened a huge literature on the long-term effects of um, and the the long-run kind of uh, aspects of economic development. The things that happen 100 years, 200 years from now still have some effect on on today's economic development. So there is uh, recently um, an economist that uh, I think she's at Harvard, uh, Melissa Dell, uh, she she just won an award, the uh, John Bates Clark Award. Um, and, and her work, this award is given to economists under the age of 40. And, and she has very, and she was a student uh, of uh, Asimoglu at MIT, and uh, what she does is she studies, for example, the the Mita in Peru, which was an institution, an extractive institution, slavery related, right? Like uh, you have these people working to extract uh, resources. I think it was silver in the case of uh, of Peru, or you have, uh, yeah, in, in the case of she, she, the analysis that she does is uh, she finds that people or regions that are poor today are 
are regions where there was more of this institution in the past. And she has done similar work in, I think, in Mexico, similar work in Vietnam, right? So, um, yeah, there is there is some branch in economics right now that is paying attention at this at this long term um, effects of certain institutions, right? For example, another example is the work of Nathan Noon. Uh, he's also at Harvard, and what he's studying is what are the effects of slavery on trust. Yeah, trust is a very important variable, and trust is a is one of the most important variables and most studied variables in, in economics and other social sciences. And trust is very important for economic development, but of course, there is a variation in trust across regions, across countries. And then you study, if you have trust, it's more likely to have markets, it's more likely to have financial systems, more likely to have entrepreneurship. But if you don't have trust, then it's more difficult. So what they see is that with, with his co-authors, is that in places where you have uh, more slavery in Africa uh, are places that have low levels of trust today, right? So you have these this kind of big effects. And, and yeah, so um, is that. And, and of course, some people are criticized this, this area of study because they said, well, if you have these long-term trends in, in economics, so why we see the case of Korea, for example, South Korea, right, where it used to be poor, and now it's rich, right? So, you know, it, you know, it, I think to some extent these uh, explanations like trust are very important, but also it's puzzling, right, that there are some countries that are doing well, but then they uh, is what is called economic reversals, right? They do well, economic uh, disasters, right? They do well and then they they don't do as well, or or the opposite. You have countries that do do pretty bad and they are very poor, and then they are uh, growing, so yeah. It's really fascinating. I know we um, we talk about like the example of uh, Venice later in our class, and I guess that was an example of like more of a reversal. Whereas um, one of the interesting papers you wrote, and and we'd actually um, my buddy and I had done research last semester on uh, Dutch disease, and I had actually talked about that on on the podcast before. And uh, we were looking into Nigeria specifically, but then we ended up looking into other examples of resource-rich countries who were able to um, better manage their resources. And we came across Botswana, and I actually came across one of your papers on Botswana. And I found it was really interesting how, like, it's such a standout country. Like, you know, I think GDP per capita today is, is something like that, uh, something on par with, like, Bulgaria, you know, an Eastern European country. And... Yeah, it's surrounded by countries like um, Zimbabwe and Angola, which are, like, super poor. And so I, I, you wrote your paper on it, and I was just curious if you could kind of explain, like, you know, some of, like, the factors behind how Botswana managed that and how it became, uh, the, 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 I guess, the powerhouse it is today. Yeah, yeah. So there, there is a, it's a fascinating case, and um, it has been studied. And actually... Uh, the, one of the first economists who studied the case of Botswana was Asimoglu and, and, and Robinson. They, they wrote a paper, I don't know, early to, early, to, uh, 20, early 2000s, and that was a paper on Botswana, and they said that institutions were important. But in, in any case, Botswana is such an interesting case because Botswana used to be very poor. Uh, in the 1960s, early 1960s, 1950s, once one of the poorest countries in the world. 
And um, in terms of, uh, for example, paved roads, paved roads, they only have like a few kilometers. And they have like a handful of people graduated from, from university, right? So it was very poor. Um, and then uh, and nowadays is uh, a middle-income country, right? Uh, on par, like you said, with some European countries. And um, so, yeah, so the, the, the fascinating question is why, how they managed to, to do that. And, and, it, and for, a, for a paper I, I wrote, like you, you were saying, I was looking at the rates of growth of different countries around the world from, let's say, the 1960s to 2004. And then I, I kind of look at the average rate of growth per region and then per country and including countries like China, like India, like, you know, like uh, Ireland, like, you know, all of the possible countries that I can get data. And the country with the highest rate of economic growth in this period is Botswana. So it's just incredible because you have this country that uh, on top of being poor at the time is a landlocked country, right? So. It can, and, and it can it doesn't have any access direct access to the sea right uh, it's surrounded by countries like you said like South, South Africa Zambia Zimbabwe Namibia so it doesn't have really any access um, the main um, the main uh, asset in the country traditionally is cattle right so um, there is uh, Nowadays, not, not not as much, but is, there is a, a tradition of collective ownership of property, of, of land. So land used to be, um, to some extent, still is uh, collectively owned. So there is a lot of kind of community, community managed resources. Um, um, and the deep, but the, the, the interesting thing is that there was proper individual property on cattle. So some people argue that because there is this um, this in, uh, individual property on cattle, that there is a strong tradition of property rights uh, today, right? So um, it's one of the less corrupt countries. Uh, it's one of the countries with uh, have like a, um, a good system, governance system, and it has like strong property rights, right? So, um, but of course, when you look at the story of Botswana, is at least for me, it's, it's not possible to mention without the name of Seretje Kama, right? So when I when I had the chance, uh, this great opportunity to, to visit the country several years ago, uh, one of the things that I did was just to walk in the streets and talk to people because we have heard so much about Botswana that we just wanted to see what people, what, what was the people take on. And, you know, we asked, you know, why Botswana, what do you think about Botswana? Is Botswana rich? Is Botswana poor? You know, what do you think? And there was like a, I noticed like a, like uh, there was some consensus, like Botswana is, is from the perspective of the citizens of the country, right? That Botswana is uh, a well-managed country. It's a country that um, you can live well. It's a country that is not gonna engage in conflict like other countries around. Uh, it's a country in which there is a high degree of accountability by politicians. Um, uh, they're certain proud about being Botswana, right? Um, so there is like a, a parenthesis here. There is this collection of, of novels about Botswana, very, very 
famous is they, they are called the um the num the number one ladies detective agency so so these are like i don't know 20 books of uh, detective stories that this uh this scottish professor wrote about uh, uh botswana and one of the things that you notice in these books is how proud, pe proud people are to be to live there and that is something that you don't see in many places right you see that in the united states people I mean, to, 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 to a large extent, of course, it's, it's complicated, but people are proud to be from the U.S. People are proud to be from, from other European countries, maybe. But in other places, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to find it. So people are proud to be uh, from Botswana, and you see that in these novels. But in any case, so it seems like uh, uh, people, not it seems like the, the, the responses from people was that Seretsekama was very important for low corruption in, in Botswana. He set this example, this kind of mystic kind of uh, example of, of good behavior, right? Integrity, right? Like to do the things well, to manage the resources responsibly, to uh, prioritize the urgent needs, right? What you need to spend the money. And, and of course, this money nowadays and, uh, comes from diamonds. So Botswana is one of the main producers of diamonds. And that was the, the resources that, those are the resources that have been used to, uh, for education, for, for health, and for, transport, for infrastructure. But, um, you know, but, but diamonds in, in themselves are not the explanation, right? Because you have other countries that, like you're saying, uh, like, like Venezuela has oil, right? Like other African countries have oil, have diamonds, and they have not managed to transform these resources into prosperity. And in some cases, it's quite the opposite, right? Like these resources can feed uh, poverty and can feed corruption. And you're talking about the resource course and the Dutch disease, right? These are problems in resource-rich societies. But Botswana escaped that, right? Botswana, it did transform resources like diamonds into prosperity. So a lot has to do with this kind of a example that this president set, right? Uh, and of course, uh, you have other explanations, right? Uh, you have the explanation that uh, there was also some coincidence of, uh, um, so some coincidence of, of investments uh, in the sense that, of interest, coincidence of interest in the sense that people in government own cattle too. There is a tradition that, you know, everybody owns cattle. Right, but well, maybe not everybody, but a, lar a large extent of people own, own cattle. So politicians own cattle. So they wanted to help the industry because they will get benefits from it. So they will establish policies that will benefit them, but they will benefit the country at large. Right. So there was a happy coincidence. So there, that is that as well. Right. So it's a country that is uh, is pretty homogeneous in terms of ethnicities. Like you have maybe eight different ethnic groups, right? In other countries, you have like uh, 100, 200 ethnic groups in Africa, uh, and even more. So um, that helps. And also, uh, but it seems that Seretse Kama did a very great job at kind of uh, putting the interests of the country first. Like, for example, he, um, when diamonds were discovered in the 1960s, he kind of uh, convinced 
the ethnic group in the territory where these diamonds were discovered to use those diamonds for the benefit of the of the whole country. So he managed to convince people. He was he, he could um, I don't know convince people that these resources and the and the management of the resources were going to be efficient for the whole for the whole country. So Seretsekama he went to study in England before he became president. He went to study in England. And there is a very interesting story. Uh, there is even a movie about him and, and the, his, his wife. It's called United Kingdom, right? And the movie tells you about the, the whole story of, of Seretsukama. They met this, he met this lady, they fought people in love, and he wanted to marry her, but of course, according to the tradition in Botswana, he couldn't come to Botswana married because he had, he was supposed to marry uh, a local lady because because Eretekama was a chief. I mean, he, he was descendant of chiefs, so he was going to be a chief. So he couldn't marry a white lady, so that created a whole kind of dynamic. He was forbidden to come, but then he managed to come with the, with the he, 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 will, he will accept that he will not be the chief anymore, but he convinced people to, to start democracy. He convinced the, the Britain, right, to give, uh, to, to give independence to Botswana, and right after independence, they discovered diamonds, right? So probably he knew, I don't know if he knew about it, but then he had the plan, he had this great vision. And then, um, of course, these diamonds, and then discovered another mine, and then another mine, right? Uh, and so they have uh, they have used those, those resources. So they have problems, of course, it's, it's not a, a perfect society in, in any way, but they have challenges, right? But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, case. Yeah. So the, actually, the story that I tell in the paper is is, is actually a, a, a slightly different story, which is that um, the asset, the main asset in Botswana was cattle, um, and let's say in other countries like Ghana, the main asset was uh, cocoa. So the story I tell in that particular paper is that if you have a asset like cattle it's very hard to tax or overtax because if you overtax cattle then because it's a movable asset right people can take the cattle and leave so that is a restriction so you cannot tax cattle too high because they will leave so that forces you as, as government to to uh, charge lower taxes and then to manage the resources more effectively Right, so maybe that that uh, that made a difference as well. Yeah, that's kind of fascinating. Just thinking about all the different things that kind of went into the story of Botswana. So it's it's the individual, right, Seretsekama, who who led this kind of amazing life and, and this amazing initiative to turn Botswana into kind of what it is today. But also just the happenstance, like just the, the just the, the fact that you know cattle herding was that main thing. And so it almost like kind of laid the footwork for the inclusive aspect of, of those institutions. And you also just had, I mean, and one of the things that we did in our research, we, we were looking at, we were trying to look at a lot of qualitative data because we hadn't taken econometrics at that point. So it was a more qualitative paper, but we were looking at different countries such as like also um, like Norway, for example, which has high levels of trust. And they kind of view it, I guess, uh, their natural resources, which is, you know, uh, petroleum in a really similar way. And so you have, um, you know, also like activists, like journalism and, 
and whatnot, you know, kind of keeping everything together. But there, there's a high level of trust. There's a sense that, you know, it's going to be used for, like, the, the good, the, the collective good, I guess. And so there isn't this rush to, like, you know, like, spend, spend the money, right? Like there was in, in Venezuela and, and to an extent in Nigeria. There's just all this pressure to, like, you know, oh, we need to spend it on this, we need to spend it on that. You know, you have to distribute uh, the, the resources and the, the good, or I guess the profits from these resources in certain ways. Whereas, I, I guess, you know, in the other countries, you just have that level of trust, which is, as you mentioned, like, so important. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, of course, the question is why, right? Why you have this resource course going on in Venezuela uh, but you don't have the, that problem in countries like Botswana or countries like Norway. And, and looking at cases, particular cases like Botswana, help us help us understand a little bit of these of these reasons, right? Um, so um, I remember uh, I did some field work as well in in what is called the Falkland Islands, right? So the Falkland Islands are these islands in the uh, very close to well, relatively close to the coast of, of um, Argentina, right? In fact, uh, they, there is some kind of battle there. They used to be, they used to be um, part of the territory of Argentina, but now they are Britain. But in any case, um, one of the things that, that is, it's a very rich society because they have a lot of resources as well. That's what I mentioned the case because they, they have um, uh, ranching, uh, but they have also oil and they have fishing resources. Uh, and they have managed those resources very well. So it's very similar to the case of Botswana in terms of the efficiency and the institutional quality that's going on in the in the Falkland Islands. Um, but but it's a very small society, right? Like uh, you have like uh, probably less than 5,000 people living in the Falkland Islands. So um, it, is, uh, it is a very rich society society uh, because because you have all of these resources that if you think about it in a population less than, than Mercer right uh, the student population so um, but one of the things that we did there is you know interview different people and and of course being a very being a very small society uh, it is the case that the person who is the police has to has to get people right to, to prison who are friends or family, right? Because it's a small society, so the policeman knows everybody. And mm-hmm. then, in some cases, he has to go after friends. <laughs> and and for us, it was interesting because, you know, we ask, uh, so um, do you go after them? I mean, do you put them to jail even though they are your, your friends? And they will say, well, yes. I mean, of course. So oh. it's so natural, right? Like, it's so natural, like, like that's what the law says, right? We do what the law, the law says we should do. In other places, or what the institutions, right? The norms. That, that's why Asimovu talks about norms as well, right? What are the norms um, that are going to sustain those institutions? But in Latin America, right? In several countries in Latin America, it's it's hard that, right? Like uh, you don't, I don't know, I, I I don't, I cannot imagine like a policeman going after friend or family or I mean maybe maybe it happened but it's it's a more complicated issue because you know it's a different it's a different institutional setting it's a different different norms going on but yeah 
Yeah, I mean, all, all this talk, I mean, it's just, it's kind of amazing because, you know, as an American, I have to feel to a great degree thankful for the fact that, you know, whether it was by coincidence or cultural happenstance or, or you know, the, the, um, the sway of, of certain institutions, like, we live in a pretty, pretty good situation, a pretty good historical context, you know, while not perfect, it's, it's pretty phenomenal given, you know, where it could have gone. Right, you know what? What could have happened if, if um, the glorious revolution didn't happen in England? Right, uh, you know, just thinking about you know all the possible other narratives we could have experienced if one thing had changed or if one leader wasn't there. You know, so uh, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to say thank you so much for c coming to talk with me and uh, talk to our audience about the importance of uh, economic development and. Uh, Hopefully, we can have you on sometime again in the future. Yeah, it will be a pleasure. Thanks for the for the chat. I really enjoy it, Rob. Well, thank you. Well, to our audience, uh, thank you guys for listening, and uh, and I guess I will see you guys uh, next time.